0: So uh, we are in the book of Micah still during the Christmas season. Does Micah seem like a Christmas book? We'll see what happens here. So the reason for his coming, oh, what happened there? The reason for his coming, guilt. So let's read uh, Micah chapter six. And if you have a paper Bible, um, you can easily find it by looking in the table of contents. And if you have a (laughs) digital Bible, you should be able to find it. But Micah, little tiny book, got a lot of messianic stuff in here. So definite Christmas verses, some of the big Christmas verses are found here in Micah. So we're going to read the first six verses and then see what we can get out of this. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He's larging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt, redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Giel, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Merry Christmas. (laughs) How does does that become a Christmas passage? Well, there's more to it, and we'll read some more in just a moment. But uh, let's do a little recap of where we have have been. Chapters 1 and 2 are Micah prophesying against Israel. But this is Micah 700 B.C., to a nation, Israel, who are in covenant relationship with God. So what does that mean to be in covenant relationship with God? Do do we have covenants today? Marriage. Marriage. You're absolutely right. Marriage is a covenant. Now, marriage is an interesting covenant in the United States and in some other nations because marriage in the United States is also legal. It's a legal agreement. But it's been a covenant throughout history with nations everywhere, but it always hasn't been a legal agreement either. <clears throat> well, then what is it? It was an agreement between people, and there are still many nations today where it's not legal, where you have to go to the town hall and do it, but it's a covenant relationship between people, and they're saying something to each other. And here's what the traditional wedding vows say, at least in the Western world. And there's variations on the theme, but you say something like, I take you to be my wedded wife from this day forward, to have and to hold, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, uh, better for worse, sickness and health, richer or poorer, till death do us part, and forsaking all others, keep myself only unto you, so long as you both shall live. So you're covenanting together. And what are you saying? You're saying no matter what happens to us health-wise, we're going to stick together. No matter what happens to us financially, we're going to stick together. No matter how bad it gets, we're going to stick together. Now, when I talk to people about their vows, and I tell them those vows, and and I like people to choose their own vows. Write your own vows. Here's what the traditional ones say. Say whatever you want. But... I tell people, make sure you know what you're covenanting you're together to say. And that thing for uh, better or for worse, I tell people this that nobody can tell you that things will get better. But I promise you <laughs> they will get worse. <laughs> It's a promise. It will get worse. And so what are we going to do when it gets worse? Well, we already made that decision when we stood up and said to each other, for better or for worse. Now, something else happens in that covenant. In that covenant, people ask people to come to the wedding. Why are they asking people to come to the wedding? Most people think it's for the beer. But... It is, it is to witness. It is to witness. To watch what they're saying. And so you're making a covenant not only with each other, but you're making a covenant with the community, right? The whole community. And you're saying that in front of the community. Now, if you go into the ancient world, and they understand that they're coming to be witnesses— And they're listening to what you're saying. Should you break that covenant, some people in that community understand you broke that covenant with them, right? Not only did you break it with each other, but you broke it with them. And there are consequences for breaking the covenant. And so God has made a covenant with his people Israel. This is 700 BC. It's a theocracy. They live within the boundaries of a land that God has given to them. And he is their king. He is their God. And they have made a covenant They made the covenant in Exodus with the commandments when Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai. They reaffirmed it in Deuteronomy 28 when God said, this is what I will do, and they said, this is what we will do. This is what I will do, this is what we will do. And so they made the covenant. And so now God is calling them to task because they've broken the covenant. They've broken the covenant. God has been faithful on his part, But Israel as a nation has not kept her part. And in the book of Micah, he's not judging them immediately for breaking the covenant. He's not destroying them immediately for breaking the covenant. He's telling them, look, you need to turn. He's giving them grace, grace, grace. You need to turn. You need to change. Grace, grace, grace. And so Micah has delivered two messages already mixed with warning and already mixed with hope. And what we're looking at now is his third message to them. Now, let's get this, that Micah is not writing to us, but the message is for us. You see, he's writing to these people at this particular time in this place. That's who he's writing to. But this message is for all of us. And we'll see by the time we finish that, it's a Christmas message, by the time we get through the chapter. What's the basic message? The breaking of the covenant has consequences. Just like the breaking of the marriage covenant has consequences. You know when there's been cheating in a marriage where marriages have broken up? There's consequences. There's consequences that happen. You can't break the covenant and not have consequences. And so if you agreed and broke it, of course there's consequences. But how much more so when the one that you broke it with is God? Yet God is good, God is gracious, God is kind. Um, Chapters 1 and 2, judgment is prophesied. Chapter 4, God is going to keep his promises to Israel, and he will rule over them. It will happen again. Chapter 5, the kingdom will come in the form of the promised Messiah. And chapter 6, because you have broken the covenant, what happens is you often end up here. Summoned to court. (laughs) And so now God is summoning Israel to court. Um, Has anybody here ever gotten a summons? You don't have to answer that. I've I've gotten a summons before. Anybody ever have the sheriff uh, deliver something to you? I have. And they're very, very good at it. They're very, very good at it. They'll knock on your door like they're trying to sell you gutters. (laughs) and when you open the door they hand you a piece of paper and as soon as you have it it's here he says it's yours now there's the summons you need to go to court you need to answer this and so god is summoning them to a courtroom and what happens in a courtroom well you've been summoned just because you've been summoned doesn't mean that you're guilty Just because you're summoned doesn't mean anything necessarily, but you are being summoned to the courtroom. And in the courtroom, there's an accusation. There's a complaint. There's a charge. Well, um, chapter 6, verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Stand up and plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hero Mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. And the knock on the door, the marshal is there, giving you a summons, calling you to court. So, what's the accusation? The accusation is God is saying, You're my people. We made a covenant. I have been faithful to that covenant, and you have broken it. And now you need to come to court. And what else do you find in court? When you get there, there are what? There are witnesses. Well, who's the witnesses in this case? He says, stand up and plead my case. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. So who are the witnesses? The hills in the mountains, in the everlasting foundations of the earth. He had given them a land with boundaries, and they were his people living within that territory. And he's saying that the witnesses that they have broken the covenant are the hills and the mountains and the foundations of the earth. Well, what is that saying? It's, it's the same as saying, if these walls could talk. What would these walls say if they could talk and a lot of us in here we know each other we have dealings with each other interactions with each other some of us might be surprised if we ask the walls to talk what has been said about us in the room (laughs) and so he is calling the mountains and he is calling the hills to testify against their sin and there will be a response there will be a response. They'll be given the opportunity to forget, There'll be judgment. The irony in this case is that when you get into the courtroom, the judge is the one that you offended. Now, that'd be something. When it going in the courtroom, you did something wrong, and you get there, and you show up, and you've got your arguments all straightened out, and you look up, and the judge is the one you offended. Wow. So what's going to happen here? And so the Lord opens up the proceedings with his side of the story. Watch what he says in verse 3. He says, my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to you? You need to answer this now. People love to blame God, don't they? God gets blamed for everything. God always gets blamed. Even the insurance companies like to blame God. They have a clause in there. They, it's called an act of God. <laughs> well, that could be anything. that is totally open to interpretation. You know, who did that to you? How was God? God did that. I thought it was a hurricane. No, nope. that was God. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. Answer me. how have I how have I troubled you? I brought you out of Egypt. remember that? And I redeemed you from the land of slavery. Remember that? And I sent you Moses to lead you and also Aaron and Miriam. I gave you leaders. Do you remember that? And my people remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted when Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Well, what was going on there is that um, Balak, the king of Moab, was trying to destroy Israel. So this whole idea of trying to destroy Israel has a long, long history. This is going all the way back into the Old Testament. This is going all the way back to as soon as they're delivered out of Egypt. There's this plot to destroy them. And then he said, remember your journey from Shittim to Giel, and there you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So answer if you can. And then he reminds them that he rescued them. He reminds them that he brought them out of slavery. He reminds them that he has given them new life. And then he says... Think back and remember the journey and remember that people were trying to destroy you. It's a good thing to remember the journey. It's a good thing to look back. It's a good thing that we have a new year coming up and, you know, supposedly we're supposed to reflect on the old year and, you know, go into a new one. You know, remember your journey. And so looking back, it's easy to see what God has done for us. But in the midst of our present difficulty our present trial our present grief it's very very difficult to see what god might be doing and so it's a good practice to count your blessings so call in the witnesses who are the witnesses the mountains the hills the foundation of the earth this is theocracy and god is ruling over them so If these walls could talk, what would they say? If these walls could talk, how many of us would be guilty? If these mountains could talk, if these hills could talk, what would they say? Well, here's what God said about the land speaking. He said, you shall not pollute the land where you are. He's given them boundaries. He's given them territory. He's given them land. They're living in that land, and he is ruling over them. And he said, you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land. And no atonement can be made for the land, the blood that is shed on it, except the blood of him who shed it. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, perfect justice, life for life. That blood, innocent blood, pollutes the land. Innocent blood pollutes any land, in any time, in any culture, in any nation. When there's violence and there's blood pouring into the ground, the blood cries out to God. The violence, the land, the violence of the land. What else was going on in the land? What else would the land say about Israel? Because these people had been violent and had done violence against innocent people. So... Um, Leviticus says this about sexual deviation. You have to go back to chapter 17 to read all of these things. Put put all kinds of words and then anality after them. For the land is defiled. Therefore I will visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it. And the land vomits out its inhabitants. It's not going to hold them forever. You can't stay here forever. The land will varmint you out if you keep doing all of these things, all of these deviations, violence and deviation and degradation. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, and you shall not commit any of these abominations. Which abominations? Chapter 17 of Leviticus. Either any of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you, for all these abominations of the men of the land have done who were before you, and thus the land was defiled. And so they came into a land where people were living in it before, but they were exited because of their violence, and they were exited because of their deviations and their defilement of the land. And so if they do the same thing, they will be exited from the land. Lest the land vomit you out when you defile it, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. Wow, pretty heavy stuff. God made a covenant with them. They broke the covenant. And he's warning them that this can't go on forever. There's going to be judgment. Turn. Change. So um, what happens? Well, it's courtroom. So there's a defense. And here's, here's their defense. Their defense is this. Well, well, what should I come before the Lord with and bow down before the exalted God? What do you, what do you want? What do you want from us? <laughs> what are these guys, are they are they 13? I mean, that's something a 13-year-old would say, isn't it? What do, you, what do you want, what did I do, what do you want? What do you want me to do? I just want you to do what you said we were going to do. Fair enough, right? Let's just do what we said we were going to do. Well, what was that? You know, uh, should I come before him with burnt offerings? How about a calf a year old? Is that what you want? You want me to bring a calf, an offering, year-old calf? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Do I need to bring one, one a one-year-old, or do I need to bring thousands? How about 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Will that make you happy? Um, Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Yeah, right. So um, what they're doing is they're taking the religious practices And first of all, they're saying, we did them, and that's not enough. What do you want? You want even more? Well, come on. Um, They're religious. They're keeping a lot of the feasts and the festivals. Well, why wouldn't you keep the feasts and the festivals? Who doesn't want to do feasts and festivals? Feasts and festivals are great. So they're doing all the religious feasts and the festivals. They're bringing some of the offerings that they're supposed to bring. But it's not from their heart. They're not serving the Lord. They're breaking the covenant. Um, Really religious, but religion doesn't cut it. God's not looking for religious people. He's looking for people in covenant relationship with him, where I love him and he loves me and we walk together and he's God and I'm not and we walk together. And they're saying, it seems no matter how much we bring, you're not satisfied. Right. So they have broken covenant with God, and now they're saying, well, you're never satisfied. No matter, <clears throat> no matter what we do, like you can never ever be satisfied. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like the guy gets caught cheating. We're in covenant relationship. Got caught cheating. So what do you do? Um, you do the externals. You do the externals. So you bring home 36 roses, a one-pound New York strip, and tickets for a Kenny G concert. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. <laughs> that, ain't that ain't what we're looking for. That's not, that's not the solution to this broken covenant. It's not doing stuff like that. It's not the religious stuff. It's not the external stuff. It's not the 36 roses. In fact, uh, <clears throat> God had a different sort of viewpoint on these things. the religion of it all. Here's what he said in Amos, which is a contemporary to Micah. God said, I hate, I despise your feast days, and I don't savor your sacred assemblies. I'm not thrilled with what's going on in those meetings. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I won't accept them. Keep the 36 roses. I don't even like steak, and I've never listened to Kenny G., nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I won't hear the melody of your stringed instruments, but let justice roll down like water and righteousness like a mighty spring. That last line, anybody know who said that? It's in a famous American speech, maybe one of America's most famous uh, speeches, but let justice roll down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Who said that? Anybody want to guess? Not Lincoln. Martin Luther King, King. yeah. Martin Luther King, he said in Washington. Makes sense, right? Let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Because religion and outward platitudes can be pretty empty. Especially if you're God and you can see right through them. Because sometimes we're the recipients of outward platitudes And we don't really know that the whole thing is phony. Well, God knows the whole thing is phony. He can see right through it. So God answers them. So they say, what do you want? What do you want from us? What is it that we could do that could possibly satisfy you? And this is what he says. He has shown you, O man, or mortal man, what is good. And what does the Lord require? So now we have a requirement. What does the Lord require of you? Three things. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Three things. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. That's what we're required to do. That's what he's requiring them to do piece of cake, right? Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. All right, we'll do that. Nothing to it. Um, You sure? Because um, justice, what he's asking of us, and we should be striving towards these things and wanting to live these things, because justice is rooted in God's character, and therefore it's to be a quality of his children, It's to be a quality of those who follow after him. We're to be just people. We're to be people who go after justice. Well, what does that mean? It means doing what's right. So we need to be people who are doing what's right. That's what God is saying to them. Do what's right. Do the right thing. For me? Uh, Yes, for you, but do the right thing for everybody. You see, working towards fairness and working towards equality for all. James said this in the church. He said, you know, if somebody comes in and they're all important and everything, you give them the best seat, you know, but if somebody comes in and they're not important at all, you don't even pay attention to them. So it's working towards fairness and it's working towards equality for all people at all times, particularly because God seems to have some preferential treatment for the weak for the poor, for the powerless, for the widow, for the orphan, for those who've been exploited by others, working towards fairness, being fair towards everyone. And and it also means that we're speaking up and we're speaking out, that we're taking a stand against those things that are unjust. It's not enough to just complain. Americans are good at complaining. Have you noticed that? We're really good at it. Like we have perfected it into an art. You know, we, we're good at complaining. But it's not just about complaining. It's we need to act and not just talk all the time. Injustice is absolute. It demands no preferential treatment of anyone. So that's what he's asking them to do and to be in what they've walked away from. Now, here's what I need to ask, though. I need to ask myself the question am I doing that right now am I rooted in justice always doing what's right working towards what's fair working towards you know equality for everybody treating everybody the same standing up and speaking out standing up for other people not complaining all the time but acting in the justice is absolute there's no preferential treatment I treat everybody the same is that what I am doing at the moment if we hand it out a sheet, where we could gauge ourselves from 1 to 10 and 10 is being perfect I'm not doing it I'm not I'm not doing justice I should be but I'm not there yet I might be closer now than I was before but I'm not quite there yet but this is what God requires of us what's the next one love mercy well that's what I want I don't I don't want justice anyway I want I want mercy. We need mercy. Because justice alone. Keep in mind, though, before we go much further, that God is absolutely perfect in justice. And so if something is done wrong, if there's an offense against God, he has no choice but to punish that. He's perfect in justice. The judge that sits there, if he's perfect in justice, then he must met out the penalty for the crime. There's no option, has to do that. And we bend justice. Why, because justice alone can be cold, justice alone can be severe, Uh, justice alone can be unresponsive to human need. You see, if it's perfectly just, 100% just, when the person comes before the judge and says, well, could you take into consideration that this is what happened to me? The answer is no. I can't take any considerations. You did it. Perfect justice means you're guilty. Wow. For real? For real. We need mercy. And usually, if you go to court, no matter who you are, you will usually get mercy. No matter what you've done, you usually will get mercy. Because we bend justice. God doesn't and God can't. So justice alone can be cold. It can be severe. It can seem unresponsive. But But we need to be warm, responding to human need, hurt and pain and injustice. Mercy, merciful towards those who are hurting, merciful to those who are in grief, merciful to those who have failed, merciful to the brokenhearted, merciful to the broken people. And so justice, at least in the world, needs mercy to remain humane. Could you imagine if God treated us according to justice? None of us would be in this room right now. But since he's perfect, he must act with perfect justice against us. How is that going to work out? But mercy, mercy lifts us out of shame. Mercy lifts us out of sin. Mercy lifts us up. King David, he had sinned pretty severely. <clears throat> and this is what he said to God. He wrote the prayer for all of us to pray this prayer when we sin. He said, "Lord, have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions, and when my sin is always before me, against you and only you have I sinned. Well, ah, against you and only you have I sinned. He killed a guy." And I've done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. He is blameless when he judges. And because God is mercy and we are his children, then he also requires us to have mercy. That's what's required of us. It's required of us to have mercy. Mercy goes beyond the call of duty. Mercy is warm and responding recognizes the hurt, the grief, the injustice, lifts people up. So on scale of one to 10, I won't make you take the survey. Scale of one to 10 for me, uh, not 10. I wish it was 10. I wish it was higher than it is, but failing there. So um, what's the next one is to walk humbly, to walk humbly. You know, which, uh, what does that do, uh, walking humbly? It it suggests an attitude of modesty, meekness, an acknowledgement of my dependence upon God. And walking humbly uh, involves recognizing our limitations. It means that I'm being open to learning and I'm being open to growth. That I'm maintaining a sense of gratitude and reverence in our relationship to God. Being open to learning, listening to others. Um, How am I doing with that? Being open to learning and listening to others. You know, by the time somebody comes and tells you about something that you're doing, I can promise you it's not the first time you did that. (laughs) Right? It's something we've been doing. And Am I open to listening? Am I open to change? Am I open to listening to what people are saying about me? Am I humble enough to receive from somebody else? Am I humble enough to learn and to grow and to maintain some sense of gratitude and reverence towards God when I'm being corrected? And so the, the broader message emphasizes ethical conduct and compassion, a humble posture in my spiritual journey. Remember what God said to them in the beginning? Remember your journey. Remember where you've come from. Remember what's gone on in your life. Well, this is required of me. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to, to walk humbly. How am I doing with this? Not too good. So acting justly, um, guilty. Loving mercy, um, guilty. Uh, Walking humbly, um, guilty. How do I get unguilty? How do I get unguilty? So we come to the next verses. Ready to move on? Listen, the Lord is calling to the city because they are in a territory, they're in the land, many cities, towns, and villages. Listen the Lord is calling to the city and to fear your name is wisdom heed the rod and the one who appointed it don't be afraid of correction am i to forget your ill-gotten gain your treasures your wicked house the shot ephod, which is accursed shall i acquit someone with dishonest scales that's ripping people off with a bag of false weights Your rich people are violent. Your inhabitants are liars. Their tongues speak deceitfully. Therefore, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. The consequences are coming. You will eat but not be satisfied. Your stomach will be empty. You will store but save nothing because what you save I'll give to the sword. You'll plant but not harvest. You'll press olives but not use the oil you'll crush the grapes but not drink the wine you've observed the statutes of omri and all the practices of ahab's house you have followed their traditions therefore i will give you over to ruin and your people to derision and you will bear the scorn of the nations wow wow for real um this is tough stuff i need some of that new testament stuff this old testament stuff is just too hard I, i i can't live up to this old testament stuff I just need some of that New Testament stuff. So give me some of that, would you please? Okay, Jesus speaking. But you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Excuse me. You need to be as perfect as God. Okay. Um, whatever you say. <laughs> how do we uh, how do we do this one? Be as perfect as God. And then Jesus, this is Jesus speaking, He said, For I say unto you that, your, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, who are the scribes and who are the Pharisees? They're the religious leaders of the day. Now, for us, in the 21st century, looking back over the scriptures 2,000 years ago, we see that Jesus exposed the hypocrisy of these religious leaders. He showed what was in their heart. And so when we look back at them, we see them as, oh, those guys. But if you lived in the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, if you looked at them, you would think you could never be as holy as those guys. That they're holy as a profession. That's what they do. They live to be holy. And you watch them and you see their lives. And Jesus comes and he says, see those guys? that are giving their whole life to reading the scripture, giving their whole life to praying, giving their whole life to being holy people. You need to be holier than them or you don't have any chance of heaven whatsoever. Thank you. So where do I go? Where do I go from here? Where do I go from here? Is there any hope at all? Is there any Christmas at all? Like what in the world is going on? Well, the cross. This is so fascinating that the cross is where justice and mercy meet because God is absolutely just and people who sin against him, you broke the covenant. Here's the thing about the covenant is you didn't have to agree to the covenant, did you? You didn't have to get up and make that covenant with somebody else. And then there are all kinds of people saying, and I wish I didn't. Well, <laughs> you did. So we made the covenant, and now we're expected to live it. We made the covenant, and now we're expected to not break it. Well, as human beings are frail, terrible things happen to human beings. And so if that covenant is broken with God, then God, who is perfectly just, should judge you with perfect judgment. There's no, well, if you knew like what kind of home I grew up in and what happened to my family, no considerations, justice. You have failed. You have broken the covenant. It's over. You're done. You're judged. That's justice. God can't help but do justice. He's absolutely perfect and he's perfect in justice And will met out justice every single time. However, it says that he's also perfect in mercy. Well, how can he be perfect in mercy and be perfect in justice? Which one is it? And which one do I get? Do I get justice or do I get mercy? I get both. I get both. Because nobody can do this. What does the Lord require of you? Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly. That's required. That's requirement. Nobody can do it. Everybody falls short of the requirements. Some do better. You got to admit, there's some people in your circles that do much, much better than you. I used to have a boss, and um, this guy was like, if anybody was like perfect, it was like this guy. And I used to try to share Christ with him, and I would use like every opportunity, you know, like uh, if he would say, yeah, Sunday, and I'd go, "Oh, yeah, Sunday, you know, I'll be going to church, hoping like maybe the conversation might somehow open up. Never, never opened up with this guy. This guy was a wonderful human being, always taking care of everybody, always uh, bringing in donuts to everybody, taking care of everybody, being just kind to everybody, and, you know, just... Uh, Wonderful, and I just thought, I will never be him. Like, how can, I, how can I get through to this guy? How can I witness to this guy? How can I share Christ with him? Like, you know, I'm nothing like I'm nothing like him. He's just a good human being. So some humans are just nicer humans than other humans. Some are just more merciful than others. And so one day he said to me, he said, Joseph, he said, get in, get in the car. He said, I gotta go up to Hartford. I gotta go get some parts for something. Come with me, I want you to keep me company. So I got in the car, keeping him company, and this guy, very dignified man, and he said, uh, Joseph, tell me about how you came to Jesus. What is this thing all about? And it was so shocking, I didn't even know what to say. It was like, oh, well, you know, well, once upon a time, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, there are some people who are, who are closer than others, but even he needs Christ, right? Everybody falls short, and God is perfect in his justice you're condemned. But he's perfect in his mercy. He's perfect in his mercy. And so the judge, the creator, the maker of heaven and earth comes off of the bench when you have been found guilty and he takes the penalty for your rebellion, for your sin, and for your iniquities. How did he do this? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh Christmas, flesh, the incarnation. The word became flesh and dwelt with us for a little while. What was the end game? The end game was going to the cross. God himself in the form of a human incarnation would go to the cross and would die on that cross for my sins and would die for your sins perfect justice. And so God would take the sin of all of the world and put it on his son, Jesus, so that he becomes the substitutionary death for us because our sin, the sentence was death. He takes our place. And so when standing before the judge and the judge finds you guilty, you say, can somebody else take my place? And he says, I will. I will. I will take your place, and you will go free. God so loved the world that He sent His only Son, that whoever his only begotten Son, that whosoever believed in him would never perish, but could inherit eternal life. The cross. The cross is where justice and mercy meet. He has done that for us. He has done for us what we could never do ourselves. Israel broke the covenant. What's the solution? God is the solution. God is the solution. God will always come through for us. You see, some people ask the question, Can God do anything? Are there things God cannot do? The Bible says there are some things that God cannot do. Anybody know what they are? He can't sin. He can't sin. Who said that? Can't sin. And somebody else said it over. He can't lie. He can't lie. He, can't lie. he also can't save people unless they're lost you only save the lost you don't save the found so God can only save the lost God can only forgive guilty people we need to accept the fact that we are guilty and and if we see ourselves humble if we see ourselves the way that God sees us then we can enter into what he wants us to be and then he will help us do it And then we will be it, not because we're being it, but because he is now living in us and he's doing it and he's working righteousness and holiness and all of these things in our life. Not that we're doing it, he's doing it. So what he requires of us, he gives to us and makes us righteous. I think I put the verse here. The reason for his coming, Christmas, guilt the gift that keeps on giving. (laughs) And he came to get rid of our guilt. He came to get rid of it. Merry Christmas. Accepting Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, making him my Lord and Savior, alleviates my guilt. Not only does it take away my sin, but it alleviates my guilt. It starts to ease my mind. It starts to ease my conscience. It starts to satisfy my soul. Christmas, coming to Jesus for Christmas. I don't know where that verse went. I guess I didn't put it up. The one that says, um, He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What did that say again? That God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, he's God in the flesh, he knew no sin, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, where? On the cross, he took our sin, he took our rebellion. So that in him, now that we have accepted that death for ourselves, now that he has become the substitutionary death for us, and he is righteous because we are in him we are righteous, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done. And so why did he come? To get rid of our guilt, to get rid of our guilt. To get rid of our sin, absolutely. Gets rid of the sin, but goes even further than that and gets rid of the guilt so that I can live with a clear conscience before God. What does it say? If anyone says they don't sin, they're a liar. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we've been forgiven at the cross. We've inherited eternal life. If that's you, it might be that you're in the room. You have not yet um, received Jesus as Lord and Savior. You can do it this morning. Real easy. We'll pray a prayer in just a second. You can just pray along with that prayer. He has forgiven us. And then when we fall short, we confess our sin and he cleanses us and cleanses my conscience, cleanses my heart, cleanses my soul is my guilt. Let's stand and pray and I think we're gonna sing a song.